All right, today is the uh, grand finale of Hidden World Views uh, as we move through these. And so we're going to think about postmodern tribalism. Um, and I want to reflect on uh, a, couple different, um, a couple different dimensions of postmodern tribalism. Uh, and then talk about, uh, in your notes, I actually kind of printed out an extended, um, uh, if you look at the, the middle of it, an extended session. Because I didn't want you to have to write this all down, but I want to talk through something. Um, um, I should just give you time to, to, to read in the middle of class. Uh, but I want to talk through this because this is, this is really important. And, and part of what uh, I think a big theme that drives our discussion, my discussion of postmodern tribalism anyway, um, is part of, what I, uh, part of my goal in addressing postmodern tribalism is I want us to work really hard to make sure that we don't reduce Christianity or the Christian faith to just one more political identity in our current cultural context. So that's a big part of what's driving uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our discussion as we think about these things uh, today. And so I want to talk a little bit uh, about the tribalism piece, a little bit about the postmodern piece, think about how these tie together and, and what are some potential ways forward for Christians in this context. So uh, in, the, in the reading for today, they talked about uh, three different terms that, that they say when we think about uh, human diversity, and again, when we talk about diversity, maybe your mind goes to something like ethnic diversity, or maybe your mind goes to uh, a number of different things, but they're, they're talking about this on a variety of levels. When we talk about human diversity, there are a few different metaphors uh, that can shape how we view, how we live together, how we function together, uh, specifically in uh, the, the, the context of the USA and what that looks like. And so when, when somebody uses the metaphor of melting pot, what's, what's the idea behind that, that metaphor? Yeah. There's been a bunch of different cultural elements that have been, uh, I'm not really sure what the fire is, but have been melted together to create one culture that is one, but it comes from a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah, and so the idea of let's put, at least in theory, right, you toss all the difference, differences into the same uh, pot, and it all gets blended, uh, right, like one big cheese fondue, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a place called literally the melting pot just down the road, um, and part of, the, uh, part, part of the point there is that when we think about this, this metaphor, the idea is you kind of take all these differences and they all get blended uh, into, into some kind of unity that happens through this, this process of blending or, or melding, however we might, might think about that. Um, but why might some people have some objections to the idea of melting pot? I mentioned this a little bit. Why, why is that metaphor maybe a, a little bit of a problem? Because yeah. you sort of lose the individuality and the cultures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that there's this sense that it is 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 the best thing to do to kind of melt these down into to one maybe uniform blend, wouldn't it be better, and this, this is the idea behind multiculturalism, uh, wouldn't it be better to preserve uh, what is distinct uh, about different, different cultural perspectives, different cultural or ethnic backgrounds, uh, so that we can keep those together, um, but distinct. And, and the idea, the metaphor that they uh, referred to uh, with this particular model is 
that of a mosaic. If you know, you know, a mosaic is constructed through, uh, usually through a variety of uh, different colored, for example, different colored tiles that all get put together in some way that it forms a coherent whole, forms a coherent picture, but it does that precisely by preserving the difference and allowing the difference in contrast to present you with something beautiful. Uh, and so it, th there's maybe a, with multiculturalism, there's this resistance to the idea of um, what, what's implied with melting pot, which is almost that you achieve unity through uniformity. If we melt everything down so that it's all the same, that's how, that's how you achieve unity. Multiculturalism says maybe there's a, a, there's a way to achieve unity without kind of maybe destroying the distinctiveness of particulars there. Um, there's a shift then as the authors talk about multiculturalism uh, versus tribalism. And part of this comes uh, from how we think about uh, how to uh, preserve a, a proper kind of distinctiveness, if we want to say it that way, or if we want to preserve uh, particularity, uh, whether it's of uh, different cultural groups or, or, or whatever that might be. But if, if we think about tribalism, I want to unpack just a little bit this question of identity. So when, when you ask somebody, they kind of start out uh, this discussion of this chapter by giving some identity markers for themselves as, as authors. And so part of the question on identity uh, revolves around how we personally would identify ourselves uh, and what that would say about our underlying uh, identity and maybe groups that we would belong to because of our identity. So uh, I'm curious, what are some of the identities, if you, if you just ask somebody, you know, how, how do you define yourself? How do you understand yourself? What are some of the identities that are significant in today's conversations? Yeah. Um, most people start off with social, with social economic status. Okay. So something like socioeconomic status? So with socio, I mean, you know, ethnic, um, cultural, um, that's all included in socio. And economic is just standing, um, you know, what bracket society one's in. Okay. Whether we're, you know, where do you fall? Like white middle class. Middle class. Low. Okay. Yeah. Uh, somebody said religion. Yeah. Just a way to like bunch everything together, like we talked about, and diversity. Yeah. Got a few new gender, age, ability, ability versus disability, ability, uh, gender or sexual orientation, sexual orientation. Um, yeah, class. Yeah. Good. What's that? Political orientation. Yeah, political. <coughs> right, and this is. I mean, yeah, that it would be interesting to think about um, 
Yeah, I'm, just, I'm thinking about it because th that part of this whole chapter is maybe to some degree how this uh, interacts with and intersects with some of those things. Um, it almost makes me want, like, should a human diversity classic hyper talk about how do you, how do you get along respectfully with people of different political orientations? Yeah. Right, and I, I just, well, I think about that because uh, as we're going to, like as we're gonna, as this unfolds, I mean, I think it was a survey last year, maybe it was two years ago, a survey that people said they would, they would rather a family member, I can't, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this, I'm probably gonna not get this exactly right. It was almost the equivalent of, of, of like, I would rather, you know, have a conversation with or eat Thanksgiving dinner with somebody of a different religion than somebody of a different political party in the American context like or, or I, uh, yeah I'm sure I can't remember how it was framed but basically it was framed as like this idea of political orientation is like a deeper divide than even something like religion yeah in 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 people's Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say, I mean, I'll say this. You think about, like, you can get two Christians that stand on, like, each, you know, the one's left, the one's right, and they'll hate each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. The whole Christian domain can't stand each other because of, like, the political divides. So I think that, in the United States, at least, that brings truth. Like, political divide, I think, is stronger than political divide. Like, they stand stronger with their political views than... Yeah. Religious views. That, that reminds me that... It's almost like political orientation is an expression of our religion. Or maybe for folks who are not religious, their political orientation is their religious expression, almost. Um, where it kind, of, it kind of fills that, it fills that gap. Um, reminds me of the old campfire song we used to sing at, at our church, they'll know we are Christians by our proper political views. All right. Yes, they'll know we are Christians. <laughs> um, Tweaked it a little bit for the 21st century. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. I'd argue that most of the friendly fire you see amongst Christians today in the States is because of political issues. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Almost it's over political party. Exactly. Yeah. Almost, absolutely. I think we'll argue more over political stuff than, like, doctrine. Yeah. yeah. It's like you can have whatever you view you want to baptism, but if you have a different view on immigration, you can be a then you're probably not. You're a liberal. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so that's that's part part of what's interesting about this then um, is to think about how are some of these different identities positioned in relation to one another. And, and by that, I just want to draw out. Depending on the context, sometimes these identities and and differences even within these identities. Okay, so differences. Uh, of ethnicity, differences of gender, differences of age or sexual orientation. In a lot of contexts, these identities are positioned or can be often be positioned in a kind of antagonistic relationship. Uh, and so that, so that the way that we perceive somebody who is different from us, uh, right, if, if I'm middle class and I'm thinking about somebody who's in a social, higher economic class, uh, oftentimes that relationship is perceived to be antagonistic, right? In other words, that um, 
that somehow by virtue of somebody being richer than me, they've gotten there because they have been in some way oppressive toward me. Right? So it's, it's perceived as, often perceived as, there, there's a kind of clash there. Um, that, that, well, often, any kind of difference is perceived as some kind of clash. Uh, and so that's where the tribalism piece comes in when we start saying within these different, within these different identities, right, middle versus lower versus upper, that, that this metaphor of tribalism, whether this is fair or not, apparently tribes fight each other. Um, I mean, it happened in Judges. Uh, but when we think about how, how this works, the idea is within these different identities that, that there is necessarily a kind of conflict. People seeking power, people seeking privilege, people seeking um, something at the expense of uh, other groups. Uh, now, oftentimes, at least historically speaking, depending on what it is, there can be something to that. So, for example, if we talk about uh, something like ethnicity, I don't know, does white qualify as an ethnicity? I'm so worried out by that one. Yeah, yeah, so part of... Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of, I think, the struggle there is at least within American history, the terminology, the terminology of white comes to mean something based on kind of this view of race, right, not ethnicity, right, because you can have people coming to America who are, you know, Irish, who hate Italian, who hate, right, don't necessarily get along, but because they're positioned over against something, namely black, that identity is all kind of concentrated uh, under this term uh, white. And so part of it, to me, that's an example, as somebody who say I'm white, and I do think that part of the history of whiteness involves a kind of a clear oppression. And so I'm not saying there is, there's nothing to this idea that there's conflict there, the question is, does difference necessarily produce this kind of conflict? Does ne difference necessarily uh, imply conflict? And this idea of, uh, of tribalism, uh, I think, often does depict the world uh, as a battlefield where the primary goal is to gain power for your people. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's kind of the primary goal. Um, when we think about how to operate on this terrain of that, that has moved from, well, the mosaic is a nice picture, uh, but that's not actually how things work in reality. Uh, reality is much more, in some ways, reality is much more cutthroat. Uh, and so really you have to be there uh, in a way to work for um, your particular tribe, your particular group. So that's a little bit about the, I think, the terminology of tribalism that's driving how they understand this. Um, how is this linked to the postmodern piece? Um, I always hesitate to address postmodernity because like 95% of the time I hear somebody talking about it, I'm like, I don't think that's what postmodernity is. Um, it just becomes like, again, like it's something bad. We know it's bad. We're not sure exactly what, but it sounds bad. Um, and so I want to be, I want to I be clear. Nine, yeah, and so the, so the idea, I mean, I hit on this in the philosophy class, like the idea that truth is relative or something like that goes back to the time of pre-Socratics. So 
I guess if the pre-Socratics were postmodern. That is correct. Yeah, it is. It is. So it's nothing new. Uh, it's nothing new. So I think to understand post the, the post piece here is to understand something about what does modernity promise? Because I think modernity is more the idea of, of, of um, the melting pot, the mosaic, that there's this sort of path uh, to unity that people start to wonder if it can actually deliver on its promises. And so three things. Modernity promises truth. Uh, that, you know, that, that part of what modernity looks at is even some of the differences, like even say in religion, like in the history of uh, Europe, wars of religion, and modernity says, well, well, we really need to get beyond that. So there's a way to, let, let's find a path to truth that doesn't necessarily involve a kind of religious belief. Uh, and so we want to move to this place where we're going to elevate uh, the pursuit of truth through the use of human reason. Right? We don't need revelation because you know, revelation, people have different views on that. Roman Catholics versus Protestants and they end up in these ugly wars. So there has to be a way beyond that. We want to find, find truth that we can all sort of hold to whether we ha we're of any religious background or no religious background. Uh, we just want that kind of access to, to truth. Uh, from the perspective of post-modernity, there are a couple of issues with this. Postmodernity emphasizes that even in your search for truth, uh, it's impossible to have all the facts. Uh, and so because of our limits, because of, because of human particularity, there's probably always going to be some things that you don't know or maybe can't know. Uh, and so there are going to be limits on what we, what we actually can know. Uh, but probably, probably more than this, not, it's not just that we never have all the facts. It's that maybe there isn't really anything like a quote-unquote fact. That our beliefs about the world, that, that quote-unquote facts, are always infected by our bias. Uh, and, and maybe that's an overly negative way to put it. Maybe a, a more positive spin would just be to say our beliefs about facts, that, that, that those are always affected by uh, our particularity. The things that limit us, the things that make us who we are. Uh, I do always approach questions of truth. I am always thinking about these things from within these categories, slotted in a certain way, right? I am a Christian. I am a man. I am almost 40. It's going to happen next year. It's going to be rough. Um, I'm old, uh, right? From, uh, I'm, a, I'm a white person. I think I'm solidly, solidly middle class. Um, at least I aspire to be. Uh, and so when we, when we think about how all those things work, you know, post-modernity says you, you can never like jump out of your own skin. You can never jump out of your own time and place. And so how can you ever really claim to have access to truth because it's always mediated through your own particular social class, economic class, all those other things really frame how, how you think about things. Uh, and, and maybe to put it, push it even deeper, what if appeals to truth are actually just a power play? Uh, this, is, this is what Nietzsche says. This is what some other uh, followers of Nietzsche will say, uh, Michel Foucault and others, um, that really appeals to truth are appeals to try to get people to believe something about the world, to maybe even, again, in, in kind of a negative sense, to manipulate how people are operating uh, so that they will function in a way that actually serves somebody else rather than serving your own interests. Uh, and so the idea of kind of a disinterested pursuit of truth here 
becomes very suspicious. People who claim to have you know, the truth are people who are just trying to probably manipulate and maybe even oppress other people by appealing to, by appealing to something like the truth. Uh, so modernity promises truth. Uh, Post-modernity says, you know, in, in that promise, you're actually probably trying to control people, probably trying to manipulate people. Modernity also promises this, this path to unity that, again, that maybe there's a way beyond some of these things that, that would divide us. Um, and so modernity underscores commonality, uh, like this idea that, that, that there's a human nature uh, that, we, that we all share. Uh, and so all people everywhere share the same human nature, especially in modernity. What's highlighted about this human nature is often uh, our reason, our rational ability to, okay, as human beings, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking things, and so I can talk with somebody else, I can reason out problems, we can come to a reasonable solution and, and make a way forward toward unity because it's grounded on uh, commonality. But postmodernity simply puts a question mark by this and says, uh, is that really possible? Is it, is it possible to go and really take seriously the particularity in all these different categories uh, and really achieve some kind of unity uh, with the things that, that divide us? Um, you know, that, that, well, if we just, you know, if we just, talk about uh, the problems of racism that have uh, plagued this country. And let, let's talk about it, let's appeal to some kind of common ground that's going to take us forward. Well, what, do you happen, what happens when talking doesn't seem to work? What happens when people seem to be driven not by reason, but by forces maybe deeper, maybe, maybe more sinister? Uh, than, than modernity allows for. And so post-modernity, um, I think, raises this question, is it possible to achieve what, what modernity actually wants? Uh, and then finally, I've highlighted this in a, in a couple of ways already, but modernity says the path or, or the means to get there is through our reason. That if we, if we are reasonable, if we sit down, we keep talking, um, then that is going to provide a path, fo a path forward because ultimately at the end of the day, human beings are reasonable beings, that this is kind of what defines us. Uh, Post-modernity is uh, much more, as one of the authors says, much more incredulous about this as, as a path forward. Uh, and so in post-modernity, there's a kind of loss of shared rationale, loss of shared reason. Um, and so because of that, uh, there's a loss of confidence that we can actually have conversations uh, that will move things forward. And so because there's a loss of shared rationale, uh, the only or one of the main mechanisms for engaging other people is not conversation, it's protest. Where part of what you're doing there is not saying, hey, let's sit down, let's have a conversation. What you're doing is I am going to sort of forcefully make my presence known uh, in a way that demands or disrupts something. Uh, and 
protest then becomes a, a means for trying to achieve something uh, other than this, this path of conversation. And so part of this means that there's this turn to politics and power to essentially try to move forward my tribe, my group, my, my interest group. Um, because if I, can't, if I can't convince somebody of something, uh, I can at least beat them at the polls. Right? If I can't convince somebody that this is an important shared cultural value, I can get people in power who will implement or push forward uh, the agenda of my, my particular tribe. Uh, and so that becomes the shift uh, in, in that direction. Uh, and so, so I was thinking about, you know, so, so what does this look like? This is maybe one image that I think hopefully sums up kind of where we're at right now. <laughs> Uh, two people with megaphones shouting at each other. <laughs> that could have that could have functioned too. Um, it's like, oh no, I'm being dragged into this. I think she's thinking, I should have drunk all this orange juice so fast. That's uh, a bad decision. Um, and so, w within this context then, I, I want to think about, and this is where I've got the extended text in here, but I want to walk through the process of politicization. Um, so, hang with me, I know it's 1.39 in the afternoon. But I want to walk through this because I think it is crucial that we understand how this process is unfolding uh, in our culture. Because I think, and unfortunately this, this is from a book written in 2010, so it's almost, almost 10 years old now. Um, if Christians don't recognize the way that the Christian faith is being politicized, people will not be able to hear the gospel. Okay, and so the point is that the more Christians fall into politicization, uh, the less faithful we will be to the mission that God has given us. Uh, that is, that was already that was already well underway when uh, James Davison Hunter wrote this book in 2010. Uh, it's been a long process, but I think in the American uh, uh, political landscape, it's only become further cemented as a reality that Christian just describes a particular political identity, not a follower of Jesus. Um, and so, what is politicization? Uh, this, is, this is point 3a. What is politicization? Hunter says on page 102 of his book, To Change the World, he says it's the turn toward law and politics, the instrumentality of the state, to find solutions to public problems. Now, notice how, uh, how, think about how hard it is for uh, people in the USA to think about some solution other than a political solution. So for example, what should we do about healthcare in this country? When people think that's a public problem, right? It's an issue if people are sick, 
in a society and they don't have the means or the ability to be taken care of, right? A society that doesn't care, right? a, a family that doesn't care about sick people in its midst, a, a culture, a society that doesn't care about sick people in its midst is a sick culture. And so we recognize it's a problem that people have huge medical bills, that people don't have access uh, uh, to decent medicine. The approach that most people think about then is what are we going to do? They primarily think of it in terms of a political approach. What legislation are you going to pass? You know, should the government ha have you know, a single payer system where everybody uh, gets health care, but it's ultimately state mandated through the government in some way? Or should, right, this is the big discussion around the Affordable Care Act, uh, where it's like, can the government mandate that people have to buy health insurance? How do we think about all of this? Uh, and politicization is this turn to saying, the way we solve those problems, the way we solve health problems, the way we solve education problems, it's all through the means of the state. And so you, we can hardly think of a problem that we're not trying to fix through the state mechanism. Uh, uh, Hunter points out, uh, this is uh, sub point two there, the amount of law in a, in, a, in a society is inversely proportional to the coherence and stability of a common culture. Did you get that again? Maybe you're like, why is he saying inversely proportional? This is not math. I don't know what's happening. Um, it's a lot of big words. It's a lot of big words. <laughs> the amount of law is inversely proportional to the coherence and stability of a common culture. In other words, if you have a shared common culture, you have to have less law because that culture has certain understandings about what, what's the cultural norm, what's expected, how people function, how people operate. But as there is less and less of a common culture, how do you deal with that change? Well, one way is by having more and more laws to govern how people are going to function. So think about an example, 100 years ago, there were no laws clarifying, or no challenges to laws clarifying something like marriage. There was, a, there was a cultural consensus on the fact that marriage was between a man and a woman. So you didn't have to have any laws stating that, yes, in fact, that is what marriage is, or no, that isn't what it is. If the whole culture assumes it, you don't have to have a law stating that this is the case. Uh, but the more and more that a culture fractures and does not share similar understandings, the more you have legal regulations uh, that have to come into existence to govern a particular area that previously you did not have to have any law about. And so the, more, the, the less that a culture shares in common, the more you're going to try to sort of keep, keep that culture afloat by making more and more laws to govern that. Does that make sense? Yes? No? Okay, just want to make sure. All right. People are like, it's 144. What's happening? Um, uh, he, he goes on to point out that lots of institutions, higher education, uh, philanthropy, science, the arts, business, even the family, understand their identity according to what the state does or does not permit. So the state regulates and is involved with all of these different dimensions uh, of our life and existence. So that even as I just mentioned with marriage and the family, the state defines what marriage is. The state regulates what the marriage is. The state defines what a family is. The state regulates what a family is. I mean, higher education, maybe don't think about how much um, colleges are what they are because they have to jump through an amazing number of bureaucratic hoops 
for accreditation and institutionalization for the way that even in, even in our context, um, most colleges, most students at colleges, even private Christian colleges, uh, have federal loans or federal grants or state loans or state grants. And so the state is incredibly involved and invested uh, in higher education. Uh, and so the assumption is that in the next point, if there are problems, law, policy, and politics will provide the solution. And so Hunter says on page 103 that the language of politics come to frame progressively more and more of our understanding of our common life, our public purposes, and ourselves individually and collectively. And so there is, when we think about even all of these things, many if not most of these are linked in some way to different party platforms uh, or to how people might classify themselves. Not always, but stereotypically. Uh, right? And in that sense, I think generally, um, right, we start to draw lines in there along the, 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 uh, along the path of political orientation. So how does ideology function in this? Uh, Hunter says our ideology is the well-established predisposition to, t to interpret all of public life through the filter of partisan beliefs, values, ideals, and attachment. Um, so since we cannot necessarily persuade people, we seek power. Uh, so we look at all of these things through a very specific ideological lens. Um, and it's interesting how much if you don't, right, I don't know if you have friends like this, like a lot of my left-leaning friends think I'm like conservative and a lot of my conservative friends think I'm like a left-leaning liberal because it's like, I. I I'm trying to chart a path that doesn't just say, well, I will toe the line on whatever a party says, but to actually say, I think there should be some nuance here. Uh, and that as Christians, hopefully we want to approach these things from a Christian perspective, um, which in some ways is not going to lead us to fall into any neat, any neat category. Um, and so we can't persuade, we seek power, so that our politics, think about this, our news media often sounds like sports media, who's winning, who's losing. Uh, right? Is Trump up in the polls? Is he down in the polls? Is Pelosi winning this impeachment thing? Is Trump winning? Who, who's doing what? Um, and so we're, we talk in a lot of ways less about the content of the actual problems that may be facing us as a culture and society and more and more about who's winning? Who's pulling this off? Yeah? Uh, so to that, to that point about you know, the news media sounding more like sports announcers, have you ever seen that uh, Monty Python skit of, uh, where they're talking about the political um, polls that are going on in Britain, and they're doing it as you know football announcers? <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I really recommend that because it's, it's very uh, it's very telling. Yeah. And I was made in the seventies. That's so interesting. Monty Python is usually a, usually a good source of. Uh, of information like that, but that I mean that's the point, and and so, uh, and the thing about it is you can always you can, especially with media today, you can watch the uh, the preferred channel of of the home team, so to speak, uh, right? And so you could be losing, but you would never know it because, you know, if you watch MSNBC, 
the liberals are always winning, and if you watch Fox News, the conservatives are always winning. Right. Uh, and so, Where are you getting all this <laughs> right, everybody, everybody lives in their own world, and you never have to actually engage somebody who might think and operate, operate differently. Uh, and so, because of this, then our ideology becomes tied to our identity. And so, what Hunter points out is that not only terms like conservative or liberal, but even when we start saying race or class or gender, sexual orientation, age, disability, even those things become uh, politicized, that they become this marker of like, well, if, if you're gay, we know you're voting Democrat, right? Where it becomes this like assumption. Again, that's not true. It's not true across the board, but it's an assumption that a lot of people make uh, that different terms uh, become politicized and are understood primarily through this lens of uh, progressive or conservative or, or liberal or conservative. And so he says on page uh, 105, next to their occupation or profession, their commitments as Democrats or Republicans, pro-lifers or pro-choicers, conservative, liberal, gay, and so on, compete to form the largest part of a person's identity in public. That identity becomes so tightly linked with ideology that partisan commitment becomes a measure of their moral significance of whether a person is judged good or bad. This is the face uh, of identity politics. Um, and so in talking about identity politics, I want to actually watch a short, so this is not as, not as good as Monty Python. Um, well, but I'm not going to say, it's not as humorous as Monty Python. Um, but this is, this is the author, Jonathan uh, Haidt, talking a little bit about um, identity politics and what is good about identity politics and what is particularly, or what is potentially problematic uh, about identity politics, where we zero in on these identities and make those really crucial to, to, to who we are and to our political engagement. In the United States right now, as many people have noticed, uh, we, are, uh, we are seeing a huge escalation of our long-running culture war. Unfortunately, universities are right in the heart of that. So the, the right, and especially right-wing media, love to show video clips of students saying outrageous things. They love to say the universities are bastions of political correctness. They've lost their minds. The left is motivated to say, no, there's not, not a problem. There's nothing going on. It's just that the right hates ideas. They hate universities. What Greg and I do in the book is we say, no, we're, we're, we're going to cut through the culture war. Let's just look at what's going on. Let's look at what a university should do. Um, and so when we talk about identity politics, which is a controversial topic, we start by saying, of course you need identity politics. Identity politics is not a bad thing automatically. Politics can be based on any distinction. It can be based on any group interest. So for gay students or black students or women to organize, that's identity politics. That's perfectly legitimate. The question is, how are they organizing? What's the overarching framework? And we've seen two versions of it in American history. You can do it the way most of the civil rights leaders did it, Martin Luther King in particular, where you draw a larger circle around the group, you emphasize what we have in common, and then you say, some of our brothers and sisters are being denied equal access, equal opportunity, or equal dignity. That works. That has worked historically in much tougher times and zones. And that works and will work on college campuses. The other way you do it, which is growing on college campuses, is common enemy identity politics. 
It's based on the Bedouin notion, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my brother and cousin against the stranger. It's a very general principle of social psychology. If you try to unite people, let's all unite against them. They're the bad people. They're the cause of the problems. Let's all stick together. That's a really dangerous thing to do in a multi-ethnic society, especially in a university where we're actually all trying to work together to solve the problem. We have to work on our speech climate. Uh, in the business world, it's called speak-up culture. Uh, in the academic world, it's called just basic openness to ideas. When you put people together and you want them to talk, of course people have a lot of different goals and fears. Nobody wants to say something stupid. Nobody wants to say something that will get them into trouble. If you can create a really trusting environment in which we're all in this together, contribute your ideas. If someone says something you think is wrong, say so. That's going to lead to more innovation. That's going to lead to more progress. But what if, what if you have an environment in which if I say something that offends anyone, they can report me anonymously to HR or some other, some other entity? I'm going to think three times before I speak up. That's what we have on campus. Um, in the bathrooms at my university, there are signs telling students how to report me anonymously if I say anything that offends them. So I don't feel free to speak up when I'm on campus. I can speak more openly off campus, but on campus, I have to watch myself. As one student said to a friend of mine, my motto is, silence is safer. Just shut up and you won't get in trouble. Now this is a terrible speech climate. A university cannot function if people are defensive in this way. So in universities, uh, in, in organizations that value innovation, we have to not just encourage people to speak, we have to assure them that they're not going to be shamed, humiliated, or punished for sharing an opinion in good faith. Look, we have a culture war raging all around us. It's very easy to take offense. People are understandably angry. Here within these walls, we have to put that aside. We have to trust each other. We have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And it's going to be good for all of us to do that. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, uh, the book that he's referencing there, he co-authored a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's, it'd be interesting to read it because it's about uh, colleges and universities uh, in the current American context. Uh, and part of his, his point that comes through there is that oftentimes it's difficult uh, in public universities for people to actually feel free and open to speak and say what they want without the fear of, as he talked about, being shamed or uh, humiliated as kind of stepping outside of uh, sort of the, the quote-unquote orthodoxy uh, of, of that particular context. Uh, so if you look on the, the next page, so what's the result of all of this, and how does this function in terms of identity politics? Uh, the result, says Hunter, is we have conflated or we've collapsed public concerns with political. In other words, there are a lot of public concerns, like I mentioned earlier, education, health, but, but we have reduced those all to political issues. And so what happens then is what really drives us uh, is a sort of Nietzschean will to power. I need to get in control. I need to be in charge. I need to be the one sort of making uh, my will come to pass in the broader culture and society. It also leads to this uh, almost a kind of one-upmanship with this sense of victimization, uh, where if you, if you are the biggest victim, then you have the greatest political sway or political power. And I think you see even a lot of in the American context, even a lot of Christians really kind of playing this up, uh, where it's like, man, Christians in America really, I mean, we are, we are an oppressed group. Uh, because, and again, it's like, well, compared to 
where, right? Where like other other times and places in the world now, like actually, there's never been a more persecution of Christians worldwide than there is now. It is not the center of that is not the USA, uh, right? That is that is not what's going on there. But there's a sense of if I can point to somebody like oh they're 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 limiting my freedom in some way uh, or they're somehow telling me I can't do something, then then that sort of gives me the upper hand. Um, because I'm now the victim. Uh, and so it really plays into this, uh, I put it in French there, because it's, it's, it's Nietzsche's concept of resentment that really what drives the will to power oftentimes is the sense of resentment that you were able to sort of exercise control over me, so now I'm going to play the victim to, to sort of get my revenge uh, against you. And so Hunter says on page 109 uh, that American democracy increasingly operates within a political culture that sanctions a will to domination. This in turn is fueled by a political psychology of fear, anger, negation, and revenge over perceived wrongs. Fear, anger, negation, and revenge over perceived wrongs. And the, the end consequence of this, he says, is that Christianity becomes one more identity group seeking power. So now Christians view Christianity politically and Christians themselves stake out their own positions in ideological terms. I mean, get what he's saying there. If that's true, uh, then Christianity has, in effect, ceased to function in the way that Jesus calls it to function in the American context. It becomes one more voice just jockeying for power. It becomes one more identity group seeking power. Um, and so we have to be very careful in this context. Part of the question for us, I think, is how do we actually move beyond this? How do we, how do we, how do we shift beyond postmodern tribalism? Um, one practice, I think, is to develop real conversation. Not real conversation based on um, some kind of idea of you know, reason, you know, other people are rational, so I can have rational conversations with them. But conversations that are rooted in something deeper, uh, that have a sense of empathy of actually wanting to sit and listen and, and hear other people and understand where they're coming from, understand their experience, understand why they think and live and value what they value. Um, that, that kind of real conversation, I think, does not happen very frequently. Um, quite simply because most of us in our culture, we don't have the time and space to say like, yeah, I just want to sit down and have a good, you know, two hour conversation with somebody. I mean, that, that happens, at least in my experience, maybe the easiest place for that to happen is in the dorms, in my life experience, maybe because we're all trying to avoid homework, I don't know. Um, it's like, I'll, I'll talk to you. Uh, right, let's sit down and Right? It means I don't maybe have to do this thing I'm supposed to do. But this, this pattern of developing real conversation, even within churches, right? Because within a, a church context, you often, well, many times you have people who do have different political orientations. How often do people at church actually sit down and say, how do we think about the issues of health in our culture and society? And maybe dial back one further is, there are people in our church who struggle with health and financial needs. How do we, as a body, come around and care for them? Before I start by coming up, here's my idea for healthcare for all Americans. 
What's your idea for healthcare for everybody in your church? Right, like how, how see, we don't, a lot of times we don't maybe want to have those conversations because they push us into a more difficult place. I also think this means we need to disconnect from conversations not shaped by discipleship. In other words, um, the people on MSNBC and Fox News are not trying to develop Christian disciples. <laughs> that, right? Yeah. Yes, they are. Uh, they're not. And so... <laughs> I appreciate your circular logic. Um, and so, so we have to recognize... And this is the struggle. Uh, if there are people who are persistently tuning in to forms of media on the left or the right, okay, so hear me clearly, the left or the right, if I'm being discipled by those conversations, like an hour a day, right, somebody comes home and like kicks back after work and watches Fox News or MSNBC for an hour, you are being discipled into a way of thinking and talking that is not in any way distinctively Christian. So if, if you add that up, if that's an hour a day, if seven hours a week you're being discipled in how to have a conversation not like a disciple, where are you going to learn how to have a conversation like a disciple of Jesus, where you're going to be patient, right? where you're going to be humble, where you're going to listen, where you're going to sit with people who think differently uh, than you? Um, and so part of this, I think, what would it look like to develop real conversation? Um, it would take time. It would probably take food, beer. Uh, those, <laughs> right? That this is... This is... Yeah, that, that depends. Yeah, there might be a happy medium there uh, in, in moderation. Um, yeah, because this, this doesn't just happen automatically. Um, and I think, I think developing these, these virtues of conversation, uh, unless we're actually focusing on how to, how to do that, we're not really going to do it. So we have to teach people, we have to learn ourselves, how do you have these good conversations, and how do you recognize the practices that are, that are, involved, in, uh, that are involved in that. Uh, the other one, I think, is, I've kind of already alluded to this, but I wonder how we can shift our conversation from ideologies. Uh, in other words, like what's your what, what's your ideal theory about immigration? What's your ideal theory about healthcare? What's your ideal theory about education? How do you shift that to on the ground neighborhoods and action? That's what I was getting at when I said, you know, I, I don't really care what your overall theory is about healthcare. How do you actually walk alongside people in your local neighborhood and congregation who have health needs and have health bills? Because what I've found is that a lot of times, people who come from very different sides of the aisle politically, when they're confronted with on-the-ground needs, their responses are actually pretty similar. Right? Like in a church context where it's like, well, how do we walk alongside people? How can we minister them to financially? How can we help connect them with the resources that they need? Um, and if we were more focused on on-the-ground uh, connection and action, um, let's say, yeah, we... we in an ideal world, would the systems we construct be very different? Yeah, but in our actual neighborhood, what we do is going to look pretty similar. Does that make sense? And, and, and so it's, I'm not saying don't have those big ideas. 
I kind of like sometimes debating and thinking about those big ideas. Uh, but realize that in terms of what that looks like in your daily life, what you do, neighborhoods, and action is more important. So, I mean, I think about it this way. We had probably about a year ago, we had this interesting conversation in our uh, adult uh, CE, Christian education time, around immigration, uh, which you can maybe imagine was a little bit interesting because uh, my church does have people from a wide variety of political views. But it was, it was really interesting because as I was kind of reflecting on what was happening in front of me, it was a pretty good conversation overall. Um, people were, I mean, people were kind of holding very different positions. But at the end of the day, I wasn't really sure if that difference made any kind of difference or not. Because at the end, we were all just sitting in this room in our church and nobody was doing anything in relation to refugees or immigrants, one way or the other. And so, it's kind of like, like... So, so you have a different position than somebody else, right? Posting a Facebook article about it is not like taking action, right? It's actually doing something. And so that's what's been interesting as our church, you know, we've kind of become more aware of these things because there's a, there's a Congolese church that meets in our building. And so it's like, oh, like there are actual refugees in our actual church building. We can maybe think more concretely about what to do rather than some kind of big theory of, how to fix the immigration problem. Yeah? Are there immigrants or refugees that regularly attend your service? There are not. That's where we have to bridge that gap in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of people. I, I, think, I think partly it's just it's the language barrier. Um, but we have done a couple things that, that kind of combine or overlap. But so far, it's been more shared space, but not shared services. Right. That's a lot of people's perspectives seem to change when there's someone in front of them who applies to. Yeah. Like, people can think as strongly as they want about immigration, people who should or shouldn't be here. Yeah. Until you tell them that that's you too, and then they're like, oh, well, I guess, since you seem to not mean any harm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think, that, I think that's important. I think that, that's why this is so powerful because this focus on kind of immediate connection and action, all of a sudden, you know, all the abstraction of like me sitting in front of talking heads in my living room spouting whatever they're spouting, it all becomes very different when it's a person in front of me. Actual people, situations. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not abstract, it's real. Would you say that this is the part where uh, regardless of the statistics, regardless of, you know, um, kind of the, the things that you, you could find um, elsewhere, the power of story really kind of, um, you know, takes, takes hold. Because when you hear people's stories, uh, that has a different effect on you than just the abstract facts you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it can. I mean, the power of story, the power of testimony, uh, right? Because it is, it's, this, it's actually, it's the story of the particular person in their, their own context uh, that can cut through a lot of the, the ideology, which ideology usually works best when separate from the real world. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, when you come face to face with the real world, it's like, okay, maybe it's not as simple or as, as clean as I might want it to be. Which is why, again, this is where I think story is directly connected to empathy. I can, uh, I can only empathize 
I think I can empathize with somebody more greatly when I hear the story and I know what they've been through and what they're going through. <coughs> which is which is which is why you know Christians should read novels and other things like that, even things that are fiction, because it helps you identify with what people are going through and uh, what life looks like in that way. Uh, and then maybe this seems simplistic, but how do we preach and live the gospel? Uh, we do it as recognizing our citizenship in God's kingdom versus earthly kingdoms. And so part of what's distinctive about God's kingdom uh, is that it does involve this, this kingdom that brings together or that bridges the gaps set up by earthly kingdoms. Uh, and so Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about how Jesus breaks down the wall uh, of separation between Jews and Gentiles. And so the problem with postmodern tribalism is that, especially as Christians fall into that trap, is that it sets up, it's not just that it sets us up as one tribe among many, it sets up the Christian God as just one tribal deity among many gods. Right? So this, this, is, this is our God, not really your God, not really the God of all people, not really the God of people who are different than me in terms of all of these other dimensions. Uh, and so if we're going to accurately and adequately proclaim God's kingdom, we, we have to recognize the centers on getting uh, who God is right. And so, I mean, if you could say it this way, uh, when Christianity falls into this, when Christianity is just one more identity group seeking power, there's ultimately a theological heresy at the root of that. Right? That when people in America uh, hear Christian and they think of just one more political power group, that's a sign that the people who fall into this are actually worshiping an idol and not God. I mean, that, that's a hidden worldview with a vengeance. Right? When you're like, we're Christians, we're proclaiming right? an idol. Um, am, I being too, am I being too harsh? No. <laughs> there. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is why to me this, this kind of stuff is so important uh, because it really is, I mean, it is life or death. Uh, and it's, uh, right, it's heresy or it's not. Um, and so it's important that we get this right. Uh, so as I was thinking about these, these hidden worldviews, so this is, that's kind of, sorry, that was kind of a downer note. Like, that's kind of the challenging, that's why people are like, I don't like reading the prophets in the Old Testament. <laughs> It's like, congratulations, you've just constructed an idol uh, and called it God. Not good. Um, but, but what I want us to think about just briefly in the last couple of minutes is this culture that we call the church. And so to be thinking about in terms of principles and practices uh, that what we're doing as the church actually offers us something different than this matrix of hidden worldviews. Uh, that when we start to think about who we are, and, and maybe you would do this in a different way. But I kind of thought about these different dimensions of our Christian community that actually push back against uh, these different hidden worldviews that, that say, you know, if you are trained to think of yourself to live in this way, uh, it is going to produce uh, a life that is actually different from 
what you get from these different hidden worldviews. So thinking about something like how as Christians we're called to think of ourselves as members of one another. That if we see another member suffering, uh, right, that I'm ready to step in, that I'm ready, that I'm ready to serve others. So that if one member <coughs> suffers, um, others are going to suffer with them. Uh, again, it, it, it may be simple, it may be small, uh, but it's something like just this past week as my wife has been sick, uh, another woman from our church saying, hey, I know Sarah's uh, not feeling good this week. Can we get a couple people to bring meals for you guys this week? It's like, okay. Right, that's a, it's small, right? You might say, well, that's not, well, to me, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal for our family that somebody sees some kind of suffering and they step into that. Uh, and so considering ourselves as members of one another uh, is, is, a different, is a different framework uh, that produces these different practices. Things like spiritual gifts, that again, that we see ourselves as gifted to give to the body rather than trying to get, as in consumerism. And so what focuses us, what, you know, we understand that the spirit is given to us, not so that we can um, kind of show off our spiritual gifts, but so that we can step in and say, where can I serve, where can I give? Not just, not just where can I get. Um, I highlighted this one previously, but I think baptism, this fact that we are united in baptism in Jesus, helps us stand against a, a kind of nationalism that says your national identity is your ultimate identity marker. Baptism says who I am in Jesus uh, is my ultimate identity marker. Now again, depending on, depending on your church context, uh, it can, those things can very easily be merged in some American context, right? We have to be baptized in the American church, which means you're American. And so we have to, we have to recognize that even some of these good things can get kind of co-opted by these hidden worldviews. Uh, we are, Scripture talks about how we're called to good works versus moral relativism. Uh, we're called to actually live in a new and different way. Uh, corporate worship, which I kind of liked as I was thinking about this, I think about the language of, of corporate uh, there's a sense of body, right? Body, corpse. Uh, right? Worship is something you do not just with your mind. It's not just about new age spirituality. But corporate worship is something that we do as gathered bodies together as the body of Christ. Uh, that this regular practice of getting together with other Christians is crucial uh, to forming and shaping us to think about ourselves differently. Um, the contrast of holiness versus happiness, again, uh, working against this idea that, that God is there primarily to make me happy, but rather God has called me to uh, a life of, of holiness and surrender to him. Um, and then, you know, when I think about the Lord's Supper and the way that not only the way that Jesus celebrates this, but how the early church celebrates the Lord's Supper is that it's actually this festive meal where people from across boundary lines come together. So Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And this is why Paul is so insistent in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, eat together. And he gets angry at people. Paul gets angry. Um, because people are taking their own private supper. Like, I'm hungry, I'm eating. I'm not waiting for other people. Paul says, no, the way that you celebrate this meal is together. Because as you celebrate this together, it breaks down the walls of division between you. Um, that in that sense, it also uh, foreshadows the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, uh, where you have people from every tribe and nation and tongue gathering together uh, to celebrate 
uh, at the return of Jesus. Uh, and so this is not a, the Lord's Supper doesn't erase these distinctions. It doesn't erase Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, but it puts those identities relative to Jesus so that we recognize the unity that we have uh, in him. All right, uh, we'll stop there for today. Uh, next Tuesday, midterm exam. Uh, just be sure you've got to upload it to Sakai by the end of the day, uh, 11.55. And I'll see you back here one week from today.